Welcome to our brand new season of the Stop Stressing Me Out podcast. I'm willing to bet we have a whole lot of new to the podcast listeners this season, given our exciting and sometimes controversial topic of workplace well-being. So let me take a minute to introduce myself. My name is Victoria Smith, and I run a company called Impactful Engagement. So I support organizations with employee engagement specific to stress management and employee giving and volunteer programs. I've been working in the social impact space for well over 13 years now. And in that time, I've run employee giving programs, created volunteer networks, managed community investment programs for Fortune 500 company, done capacity building for nonprofits, and more recently worked with dozens of the biggest brands in the world to help engage their employees in their communities. In 2018, I expanded my focus to stress management, having gone through my own experience of burnout in the workplace, twice, and I did not want to continue repeating this harmful habit. I became a registered health coach and began working with primarily women to help them better manage their stress. And I cannot begin to tell you how fulfilling this work was and continues to be, because when you help someone stress less in one area of their life, it positively impacts so many other aspects. It led to me writing my book, Stress Less in 90 Days, Your Guide to Beat Burnout, Build Resilience, and Actually Enjoy Your Daily Life. And as I began working with corporate groups, teams, and organizations as a whole, I got so excited by the exponential impact. Rather than support one person, which I still do, but I could help develop policies and programs that would improve the lives of dozens of employees and as a result, their families and friends. Exponential impact. Now, I geek out on this stuff all day long, so it's easy for me to start to think, well, everybody knows all this stuff. And it led me to follow fascinating people on LinkedIn, read inspiring books, and talk with leaders who are doing some really cool stuff. And I thought to myself, well, a lot of people don't actually know this stuff, and I want to share these conversations more broadly. And that leads us to the start of this season. This season of the Stop Stressing Me Out podcast is all about workplace well-being and how we can better manage stress in the workplace. Now, I know a lot of people who, when they hear the term workplace well-being, will roll their eyes. It conjures images of pizza parties instead of raises, or of cringeworthy team-building activities, of employee engagement surveys that feel like they suck the life out of you, and skepticism of intent. But is that workplace well-being? If that's all it is, then yeah, I would say workplace well-being is a bunch of BS. We don't need inauthentic pizza parties and recognition events. We, the working population, want a workplace that values us, not only with a paycheck, but with meaningful work, great team members, a safe environment, both physically and psychologically, and recognizes that we are whole people coming into the workplace. It sounds like a lot that we're asking, but ultimately we're just asking to be treated with respect as human beings. The term workplace well-being is met with skepticism by probably millions, because so many of us have had harmful workplace experiences. We've been burned through layoffs or toxic environments, competitiveness, a lack of development opportunities, discrimination, and more. And while in a perfect world, you would enter each new job or each new organization with a clean slate, that's not how our brains work. 
or our emotions. Like our brains want to protect us. And so these past data points, these past experiences can color our current and future experiences. Now, I strongly believe in the importance of developing workplace well-being in an authentic and committed way. And I'm coming to this series with the firm belief that we as people, as leaders, are doing the best we can with the skills, abilities, resources, and knowledge we have available to us. That said, this is a series about bringing both myself and other experts to the table to share new skills, new abilities, new resources, and new knowledge so that you can level up. Whether you are a team leader, you work in HR, are an individual contributor, or maybe you support an employee resource group, this podcast will hopefully bring you some new insights and encouragement. I believe every workplace can do better, and some workplaces are already doing great, but it's that 1% improvement every day that builds layers over time to monumental shifts in how we experience work. So let's start the season by talking about what workplace well-being is, how it evolved over time, and where the opportunities lie. Before we get into the current state of workplace well-being, I want to chat a little bit about where it's come from and what it's meant over time. So I'm going to tell you a little story. About this time last year, my family and I were on an epic adventure for five weeks across the UK. I've got two little kids. Um, They were, how old were they at the time? Four and seven at the time. They're now a little bit older. And we were visiting family in different cities around the country. And on one of our stops, we were in Manchester. So we chose to visit a national trust site called Quarry Bank, and it's an old cotton mill built in 1784. It was quite the eye-opener for my young kids. They got to see the noisy machines in action and learned that it was actually small children, like themselves, who had to scurry under the machines every 10 to 15 seconds to pick up any cotton scraps. And the reason they were doing that was so that there wouldn't be the risk of a fire. And then they had to scurry back to safety before these big, heavy machines slammed back into place. My son, who was seven at the time and is a very gentle soul, he looked at me with wide, sad eyes and he said, why would they make kids do that? Now, it got slightly more traumatizing for my son as we toured what was called the Apprentice House on site, and it was a building that 90 children lived in. It was not a large place, like it was the size of a pretty decent house today for 90 children. And many of these children were living hundreds of miles away from their family and working out multi-year contracts that their parents had signed them up to, or they were orphans and had been signed up to those contracts by orphanages. Children were crammed into these rooms. Physical punishment was not uncommon. And much to my kids' disgust, the kids were locked in their dorms at night with only a chamber pot to relieve themselves. And I can only imagine the smell. Now, the mill stopped operations in 1959. And over the course of nearly 200 years, many improvements were made to working conditions. By 1847, they actually had stopped using child labor, yay, So from 1784 to 1847, during that time period, they had also improved working conditions for the kids. Corporal punishment went away, there were shorter working days, more food allocation, better health care, and studies were provided to the children. 
Now, I know that like doesn't sound like a lot, but we're talking the mid-1800s here, and it was actually quite advanced for its time. For the rest of the mill, cottages were built for the staff so they could live comfortably nearby, and these were actually quite cute cottages. The mill owner began to take a serious interest in worker welfare, and that's probably because he realized that the healthier and happier his employees were, the better the output, and the bigger his bank account. He invested some of those funds back into the mill to purchase safer, more effective equipment, making them one of the first mills to really introduce the topic of occupational health and safety. You could call this early workplace well-being, and the definition of that being activities, programs, and or organizational policies designed to support healthy behavior in the workplace. Was it perfect? God, no. But imagine the impact on the workers without those shifts and improvements over time, because not all mills were as, you know, forward thinking at the time. The intent of workplace well-being and its respect for the worker is what has given rise to dozens of improvement over time, including health care coverage, shorter working hours, unions, minimum wages, whistleblower policies, parental leave, ergonomic workspaces, on-site fitness classes or memberships, childcare facilities, health spending accounts, worker compensation, employee volunteering giving programs, dental coverage, compassionate leave, and on and on and on. It's also led to increased training and development for employees and for leaders in uh, health topics, people development, DE&I training, mental health first aid, and more. So when I say all those things and I look at this list of incredible features of workplace well-being, we often take that for granted in the Western world. And quite frankly, most of what I described does not exist in poorer parts of the world where their working conditions are not ideal, to say the least. But when I look at this list, I can say with resounding confidence that workplace well-being is not a bunch of bullshit. So maybe when we're rolling our eyes, we're not taking into consideration the evolution of improvements in the workplace. And understandably so, I get it, because 70% of us are still ranking our workplaces as our top stressor. And our stressors impact our health, physically, emotionally, mentally. And so if your workplace feels like it's impacting your stress and your health, no wonder you feel that well-being is maybe not quite a top priority. Now, we might be feeling the stress because of unfair pay, a boss that we don't get along with, being under-resourced and overworked, or microaggressions we experience on a daily basis. Like, there's so many different reasons we feel that stress. But what this says to me is that we have new areas to focus on that are more nuanced and can feel more challenging to navigate than previous shifts and improvements we've made. It's not black and white because we're now focused so much more on people than we have been before. Now, it might not feel like we're focused on people if you're the one feeling the brunt of stress and, and frustration. But again, if you are coming to this with the mind frame, that we are doing the best we can with what we know and the skills available to us, then let's maybe consider we're living in such a gray area right now when what we all want is clarity on how to proceed. When I talk to workers and organizations nowadays, the impression that I get is that there is a lot of throwing things at the wall, hoping they're going to stick, trying too many things at once, 
and also not trying it for long enough to see if it's going to have an impact. Over the course of this season, we're going to be talking to leaders and industry experts on a wide range of topics, from employee resource groups to those pesky employee engagement surveys, building psychologically safe teams to managing and preventing stress leaves, part-time professional work to employee volunteer and giving programs, and more. The goal of the season is not to give you 10 million new things to try and then throw at the wall, but rather to spark interest and excitement and to help you and your organization to feel empowered with the change that you can and will make. This season is about being intentional and like I said at the top of being committed to showing up and trying, to moving the needle in small increments that build real momentum over time. Your employees will thank you for it And when you implement some of these practices, the pride and satisfaction that leaders will also feel is going to help keep the momentum going. So to reiterate, and to close this episode out, workplace well-being is not a bunch of BS, but it takes thoughtful, caring, determined people to make a difference. And I'm willing to bet that if you're listening, you are one of those people. So welcome. Welcome.